Hey, welcome to Coffee House. We talk about books and big ideas. Today, we're talking about poetics and rhetoric. It might be a little too revealing of my Philistine nature, but I did not realize initially that poetics and rhetoric were separate books. Each of their own accord, each making arguments on their own and written separately. So, we have two books for this week. Look how prolific that is. Poetics, however, is pretty short. So it was written in 335 BC. It is apparently the earliest surviving work of dramatic theory. Of course, much of what we've done and the book that I have published is likely within that category, so it's a little ironic. And then Rhetoric was written around the 4th century BC, and it's on the art of persuasion. And even today, some still consider it the best book on the subject. So that is pretty impressive. As always, we will go through the contents of the book. We'll do a little bit of analysis to talk about how good or terrible the book is, and then we'll talk some big picture stuff to wrap it on into our bigger ideas about the way the world works. So we'll start with poetics here. What is the content of poetics? So it has a, a question that it poses, what is a poem? That makes sense. For Aristotle, there are three categories that he subsumes in the category of poetics. And those are drama, lyric poetry, and the epic poem. So it's not just the traditional poem that has meter and rhythm and rhyme usually and all that. But it's also just dramatic writings and epic poems. He references a lot Homer and Sophocles. Of course, we've read some Sophocles. I don't think we've arrived at any Homer yet in our, our list of books. But there are a lot of examples from those types of works and other contemporary works to show a lot of the things that he talks about. Poetry for Aristotle is an imitation of reality. And then he discusses the different types, so comedies and tragedies, and how in tragedies there must be action. Without action, there can be no tragedy. But you can maybe have tragedy without character. And he does this a little bit here, where Aristotle will go into some kind of iron rules for a lot of these things, many of which, of course, are likely very useful. But it's a little odd how unapologetically boxed in a lot of the assertions are. So plot is the soul. It's not as good without a plot, but character is secondary. Plot must be a whole and work entirely together, and the end must naturally flow from the previous. It's like a living organism. Just as in living organisms, beauty depends on magnitude and order. And one little rule that he puts here, that you have to go from bad fortune to good, or from good fortune to bad. Of course, that makes perfect sense. And he puts it this way, that the job of poetry is to say what may happen by probability and necessity. So one of the things for Aristotle is that there's some kind of a particularly rational substrate to poetry, to the kind of poetry that he's talking about. There are certainly some different mores when it comes to women. Apparently women can have no valor when it comes to character. He says character must be good and it can't be a slave or a woman. And he finds that tragedy is superior to the epic poem, and that an epic poem can have many tragedies built in, but that ultimately tragedies are superior. So obviously there's more to that book, but for our purposes, those are the ideas that we're going to pull out of that. And then we're going to go into rhetoric, which I found much more fascinating and vital. So rhetoric is about the art of persuasion, and there's this idea in the intro, I believe it's written by somebody else, but that Aristotle believed that logic was scientific and that rhetoric deals with probability. So it's necessary for human affairs. It's a practical way of discussing these issues. And then there's also this distinction here between persuasion on the one hand and manipulation on the other. Manipulation is something that's bad, that's negative, but persuasion is the thing that you should be using. And there's the initial introduction to the idea of ethos, pathos, and logos, which will be addressed more thoroughly, of course, as we go along. 
Okay, as we get into the actual book, one thing that he emphasizes is that appeals to emotions tend to corrupt, but you can't just leave it aside, so that you must use it on the side of truth and justice. And he points out that arousing prejudice, pity, and anger have nothing to do with the facts. It's not legitimate to manipulate the judge, and the way that he puts it is that you might as well warp the carpenter's rule. Now, one positive in this task is that things that are true are easier to prove and easier to believe in. So if you're on that side, although it might get difficult at times, that you have a foot forward from the beginning. And then one amazing framing of the issue that I hadn't considered here. So he talks about how you engage in rhetoric, not necessarily to succeed in persuading, but to come as close in each circumstance as the circumstances will allow. And there's an analogy to medicine. It's not the function of medicine to simply make a man quite healthy, but to put him as far as may be on the road to health. So it's the same thing with persuasion and rhetoric. You just have to get them as far along as you can, <laughs> given the person and the circumstances. And that's kind of a reassuring framing, that you don't have to completely 180 flip everybody that you try to persuade. Then we get into the definition of rhetoric. So these are the things that have stood the test of time. The power of showing character is the ethos. It is the ethical value or how much you trust the speaker. Now, I originally thought that this is actually working the ethics into whatever the argument is. For a long time, I thought this was. It was about, does your argument have some kind of ethical value? And that's what ethos is, but it's really the ethos of the speaker. Then there's the power of stirring emotions, that's the pathos, self-explanatory, and the power of proving truth after that, which is the logos. Now, ethos or your credibility is more important when absolute certainty is possible and opinions are divided. And he points out this is a messy process, that our judgments when we are pleased and friendly are not the same as when we are pained and hostile. And here he introduces the concept of the enthymeme, which is something I <laughs> swear. Now, I've read the definition of this on multiple occasions, and I just read it again, and I, I am not quite sure I understand how it's applied or what it actually means. So it's apparently a syllogism wherein one of the premises is kept opaque, that you can't, it's just taken for granted, and it's supposed to be a useful rhetorical tool to use the syllogism in that fashion. But there are multiple types of anthememes, and Aristotle just really talks about too, this is apparently a very deep kind of rhetorical question and concept that people still debate unto this day, so I can't really illuminate much related to that. <laughs> Then he goes into the types of oratory. The political speaking is one that he identifies. It's about people trying to persuade you to do or not do something. Then there's forensic speaking, which are attacks or defenses of somebody. And then there's this kind of ceremonial display, which is just about praising or censuring somebody. Then we go into a couple of chapters related to specific ideas. So the definition and analysis of good, what good is. And in the midst of these chapters, it was kind of difficult to pull much of value out of it because they were so specific and direct about just individual examples of things that are good. It would be like listing uh, Skittles are good, ice cream is good, not kicking people is good, that sort of a thing that got a little strangely tedious. But so for his definition of good, he references things like wealth and friends and honor and reputation, all the sciences and art, justice. Those are good things. He does have a, a little sojourn here where he talks about types of government and how they always end, or how they tend to end anyway. So the end of democracy is freedom, the end of oligarchy is wealth for the oligarchs, of course, and the end of tyranny is to protect the tyrant. 
Then he lists some virtues and talks about some pleasant things. <laughs> They're just, I don't know that there's all that much to be taking from these kind of chapters. And then he goes into the bad, talks about two classes of wrongs against the community and against some individual. But most of these and a lot of what comes is kind of weirdly pedestrian. And there's later he talks about in, in another chapter how to use emotions. He has some arguments and some examples. So argument by example, you would use things like past facts in some circumstances. You could make up facts in others, and that would be something like inventing a fable to make a point. And then there are chapters about the style of speech. Again, a lot of these will be just like grammatical rules that you ought to, <laughs> ought to use, or hey, don't use the wrong word for this thing. So like misuse of compound words was one category. The employment of strange words was another thing that he warned against. And then there was a kind of a nice definition with examples of similes versus metaphors. So they're only a little different, but he explained it this way. So Achilles leapt on as a lion is a simile. The lion leapt is a metaphor. So it's kind of an easy thing to remember to show the difference. And then there's this little flourish that I thought was useful. I think he was quoting somebody else, though, at this point. Destroy your opponent's jesting with earnestness and earnestness with jesting. So if your opponent's trying to be super earnest about something, then make a joke about it. If they're trying to make a joke about something, then make it really serious. All right, those were kind of the important points that I took out of the book. Like I said, there were large tracks. The chapter on what is good and the chapter on what is bad, the chapter on how to use emotions. I mean, those ones, they just seem to have such obvious advice. And it might have been revolutionary for the time, of course, but it seems so obvious that it wasn't particularly useful. But the opening was vital, multiple mic drop moments of things that I absolutely loved. It was apparently, like I said, the first work of its kind, so that's amazing. And this was prior to the birth of Christ, so... That was pretty early on that it was he was getting going there. But there were amazing test of time kinds of ideas, like what we talked about with the come as close as circumstances will allow when it comes to trying to persuade somebody, realizing that it's so listener dependent. That's a kind of a wise thing to put out there. That emotional appeals corrupt people. That's great. And the ethos, pathos, logos structure that is still something that I heard in law school, you know, <laughs> when I went to law school. So those are big ideas. There was not a particular, particularly large amount of humility in the midst of this, this work <laughs> where he says, oh, well, this is what I think, but you know, I'll leave it open for, for other people to add their analyses. He was pretty unrepentantly assured of whatever he was saying. But anyway, to go into big picture, the thing that is concerning to me is that we might have entered the propaganda portion of American history. And there's always a question of how effective persuasion can possibly be for complex topics. When things are too complex for somebody to be able to grasp in any meaningful way at any single time, then can you really persuade them to do anything? I was just reading a book that was talking about how the average attention span went from 12 seconds to 8 seconds. Pretty steep percentage decline <laughs> when it comes to attention span. But on the other side, people can sit through 10 hours of somebody saying the word pineapple over and over again on YouTube. So who knows if it's really attention span or there's just some kind of other appeal that's going on right now that we're still trying to understand. I mean, I think we are going through a kind of collective psychological fit that's testing the boundaries of society right now as we kind of mature. This is the thing. This is the rebellion against this thing that this functional civilizational momentum that we have that says, oh, look, look how prosperous we are. This is what you're supposed to be doing. And we have this kind of psychological fit. And it could be a result of being collectively infantilized, and so that's, that's why we're willing to throw a fit at this stage. 
But we'll sober up at some point. The problem is that in the meantime, the elites are going to use this upheaval and manipulate uninformed citizenry as much as humanly possible to consolidate the power that they have. So we'll see where it goes. But <laughs> so this was the coffee house. Poetics and Rhetoric by Aristotle. Two books. I got them in a collection, but there's two of them. One talks about the structure of fiction. The other one talks about what is persuasion. And they were a fun read. And next we are going to go into the discussion about these books, which is just some idea that was prompted by them that we can dive a little deeper. And then we'll have a new book coming up as always. And we'll keep it going. And I will see you on the next one. All right, bye. Bye. <music>